On this episode of Common Mystics, we unravel the events surrounding a 1981 car bombing in an affluent suburb of Chicago. I'm Jennifer James. I'm Jill Stanley. We're psychics. We're sisters. We are common mystics. We find extraordinary stories in ordinary places. And today we take you to Hinsdale, Illinois. I am super excited about this story. Are you? Tell me why. It's our home. Like, this is our stomping grounds. I know. It's totally home. Okay. So we just finished our book. Mm Mm-hmm. Common Mystics Present. Murders it. Ghost on the Road. <laughs> Ghost on the Road, Murders and Mysterious Deaths, Value You don't one. even know the name of our I book. I do not. Seriously, I'm, you don't even know the name of our it's book. It's long. Nice. It's long. Nice. <laughs> it's a long name. <laughs> Who named it? <laughs> Who named that book? That's a stupid name. I'm just kidding. Available on Amazon. <laughs> anyway. Order now. <laughs> so we finished our book and we, we went to the cemetery to visit our mom, grandma, Jeannie, grandpa, and we brought them drinks. Mm-hmm. Champagne. We gave Grandpa his vodka drink, a good vodka drink. Of course we did. Vodka, Grey Goose with grenadine. Mwah. And no one at Resurrection stopped us to ask what we were doing. Mm-mm. It wasn't weird at all. No, not weird at all. No. Nope. But after we said thank you and shared with our, our loved ones about the book and how grateful we were, we were going to set our intention in the cemetery and then head on the road to get our vibes. That's exactly right. So Jennifer, can you please remind everyone what our intentions are? We ask the spirits to lead us to a verifiable story previously unknown to us that would allow us to give voice to the voiceless. That's right. And immediately when we were leaving Resurrection Cemetery, we got on Harlem Avenue and we took Harlem down to Ogden and made a left. So we are headed away from the city of Chicago. That's right. But even as we were headed farther into the western suburbs, we were picking up on some serious mob hits. Right? Like, I was feeling mob vibes full on, and I kept seeing the town of Cicero in my head. I kept getting that impression of the the Cicero connection, this mobby feeling. Mm -hmm. What were you picking up on? I was picking up on slot machines and casino. Casinos, but the movie Casino. Yes. Yes, I love that. That's a good movie. Did you see it? I don't think I've seen it. It's not one of the best, but it's a good one. You should definitely see it. I don't think so, but go ahead. I was picking up on Teamsters. I don't know exactly what it meant, but I definitely, Mm -hmm. the word Teamsters popped in my head. Okay. Also, as we were driving on Ogden Avenue, specifically between the towns of Western Springs and Hinsdale, right by the 294, by the Whole Foods there, Mm. that's when I sensed an explosion not just a fire, but an explosion, a blast. Damn. Mm-hmm. A little unsettling. I was picking up, I love this hit because it's it's so easy. <laughs> in the movie Superman 2, in the beginning, the mm-hmm. leather-clad trio of villains, mm-hmm. they're standing and they are on trial. And you see these big faces that like make up the background saying, guilty. Mm-hmm. guilty. So I was getting the feeling of not only being on trial, but guilty and wanting to evade the law. Feeling mm. like they got me. They had to try hard to get me where I'm at kind of feeling. Mm. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Like, in spite all my efforts, I'm still on trial and I'm still guilty. Okay. Nice. 
excellent voice work there. Thank you. I was also picking up on the idea of a family-run business and that idea that if you're born into a family with a family-run business, it's assumed that you will be a part of it. Mm. And that idea that there's really no choice. Well, I love a good mob story. So, Jennifer, give me some background about the Chicago mob. When we knew we had a mob story, I started looking into the beginnings of Chicago and its relationship with crime. Why? Because Chicago seems to be a city that has always been very tight with crime. And I want to understand why. What was it about the city that attracted criminals? And I think I found it. Well, I want to hear it, but I just want to tell you right now, but that's kind of the reason why I love Chicago. You know what I mean? (laughs) You belong here. Yeah, there's that gray area. Okay. Is there there a gray area, Jill? We can discuss that in detour. Oh, my gosh. But... Tell me about Chicago's origins and where crime kind of wove its way into the foundation of the city. In 1837, Chicago became incorporated on the west bank of Lake Michigan. And because of this, it was very wet and very marshy. And so when the city was first being built, it had those wooden plank sidewalks. And the water and mud would constantly ooze up into the city and onto those planks. And it was just a big mess. Mm. And so somewhere in the 1850s, they decided that it would be a great idea to lift the city up. And so they literally rebuilt the city about 10 feet onto what are essentially stilts. And so after the city was lifted up, criminals immediately recognized the potential of that space beneath the streets and began operating out of rooms and tunnels beneath the city. And this was the beginning of the Chicago underworld. Okay, well, I love it. That's a great origin story. I'm excited. Tell me a little bit about what was happening in the late 1800s or the turn of the century. Because that's when everyone thinks about the Chicago mob. They're thinking early 1900s, right? Yeah, the thinking of the early 1900s for sure. And so this time, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, you have this influx of criminals being brought in, attracted by this underworld, and a burgeoning network of illegal activities taking place in the city. And there's also political corruption and a local police force that was consistently inadequate in size to effectively combat the rampant criminal activity. So it was kind of a perfect storm. And the inadequate police force was by design, right? No one wanted an adequate police force to stop the crime in the city because some politicians were on both sides of the law. That's exactly right. You would rely on the politicians to beef up the police force. But if the politicians themselves are dirty, that would not be a priority, would it? Exactly. So now tell me about the Chicago outfit, a.k.a. Chicago Mafia, a.k.a. Chicago Mob. The Chicago Outfit is an Italian-American organized crime syndicate or crime family based in Chicago, Illinois, that originated in the city's south side in the year 1910. Can I just stop you and say the Chicago Outfit is a great name? That's pretty, that's a great name. The, the Outfit, that's pretty You like cool. that? I do like The Chicago Outfit should be a fashion design house. Oh my God. Let's do that. 
Anyway, so some sources say that it was Prohibition that actually created the American Mafia. You remember Prohibition. Uh, Yeah, it was dark days of American history. (laughs) From 1920 to 1933, U.S. Prohibition was a law that banned the production, transportation, and sale of intoxicating beverages, which essentially shifted legitimate alcohol production and legitimate alcohol selling establishments into the criminal economy. I definitely feel like Prohibition put fuel on the fire, but I do not think Prohibition started the outfit. But it helped it grow in a big way. Well, it definitely put them on the map as a major player. Yes, I agree with that. Because the mob was heavily involved in illegal alcohol production and distribution and selling. Tell me what that looked like during Prohibition. So the outfit at that time was led by Johnny Torrio and, of course, Al Capone. And they controlled illegal booze, gambling, and politics in the city. Now, fun fact, after Capone's arrest for tax evasion, Paul Rica co-ruled with Tony Accardo until his death in 72. Accardo then became the longest reigning mob boss until his death in 92. Now, I bring this up because there's not a lot of turnover in Chicago mob leadership between Al Capone's time and the early 1990s. And I think that's pretty incredible. I think that's pretty incredible. It shows the stability of the organization. Exactly. This is not going anywhere. It is well done. (laughs) Right. Well done. It is well done. Now, despite never thoroughly dominating Chicago's organized crime scene, the outfit has consistently been the city's most formidable, aggressive, and expansive criminal group. Indeed, one of the most powerful in the entire Midwest. And at the height of its influence, the power of the Chicago mob extended to places as distant as California, Florida, Nevada, and continues actually to maintain a presence throughout the Midwest, Southern Florida, Las Vegas, and parts of the Southwest. Okay, so I knew just from like mob movies that obviously the mob was in Vegas and South Florida. Sure. I don't understand the mob expanding from Chicago and like spilling into the suburbs. Like I get like why they would want Vegas, yada, yada, yada. But why did they leave the city and kind of infiltrated the surrounding suburbs? Well, again, it started with prohibition. It's always prohibition. It always comes back to prohibition because the mob needed open spaces to manufacture and store booze. The space was needed to accommodate all of the equipment required for brewing and distilling. And they needed to be discreet because brewing and distilling creates strong smells. Yeah. So would. they couldn't do this in the congested city limits. And so they they started to move out into the suburbs to find more space. Okay, that makes sense. And then during the 70s and 80s, there was yet another reason why the mob continued to move out into the suburbs. Tell me everything. And that was because of the rise of street gangs in the city. You know that things have to be bad in Chicago when the mob's like, it's, there's just too much crime here. <laughs> right. right? If they're right. looking for a safer place to do their crimes, there's a problem. 
Right. And so in the 70s and 80s, these street gangs joined the spectrum of criminal organizations operating within the city, and there was a power shift. And therefore, the outfit sought to leave the city limits and again extend into the suburbs. Yeah, because they were bringing too much heat with all these street gangs. Mm -hmm. Also, the 70s and 80s was significant for the Chicago mob for another reason. Why? It was actually a time of significant decline. Okay, that makes me sad. Mm. Really, Jill? Just It does. And it was due to a couple different reasons. And one was the introduction of new federal laws that made it easier for law enforcement to prosecute illegal activities. But another important reason was because of Joseph Valachi, a New York mobster who broke the mafia's sacred code of silence in 1963. That is crazy. Right. That you don't snitch. You don't snitch. Snitches get stitches. Yes, they do. There used to be this sacred oath of honor. And silence. Sacred oath of secrecy. Yes. But suddenly in the 60s, it was broken. And then all of a sudden, it kind of opened up the gates. Now everyone's talking? Well, not everybody, but it made it easier with new federal laws and with the the code of silence broken. Suddenly, it was an option, whereas it wasn't before. Crazy. So overall, in the 1970s and 1980s, these were decades of transformation for the mafia in Chicago, which was characterized by a general decline in power, expansion outside the city limits, increased scrutiny of law enforcement, and conflict and betrayal within the organization. Okay, Jennifer. Yes. I'm glad you ended there, 70s and 80s. During that time frame, based on our hits, what was the research you found? You are not going to believe this. Tell me everything. On June 24th, 1981, a law enforcement officer was operating a radar at the intersection of Ogden and Grove Avenues on the border between the Chicago suburbs of Western Springs and Hinsdale, Jill, that's exactly where we were driving that day in March. That's right. And out of the blue, there was a thunderous explosion at 9.43 a.m. Oh, my God. What was it? What do you mean, what was it? It was an explosion. Yeah, but what exploded? Tell me. What did the officer find? He drove his patrol vehicle onto the crest of the tollway bridge and spotted a plume of gray smoke and an enormous crater in the southbound entrance ramp. The traffic that's got to create. Oh, There were fragments of a vehicle strewn about within a 200-foot radius. I mean, we're talking closing streets. You got to get the bombs. I mean, this is just a nightmare for traffic. Yeah, that'll make you late for work. Oh, for sure. Right. For sure. But basically, Jill, a car had exploded. That's the that's the headline, not the traffic. <laughs> okay. That seems pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Tell me why the car exploded. Oh, detour. We need to talk on the detours about the time your car was on fire. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. We have a okay, lot to on. talk about in the detours. Okay. The explosion was caused by a car bomb that had been attached to the underside of a silver 1979 Mercedes-Benz that had been driven by a man named Michael Cagnoni of Hinsdale. Michael Cagnoni was on his way to work at the time, and as the car passed what was then the Cypress Restaurant parking lot, now a Whole Foods, a remote control device detonated the bomb, and Cagnoni 
died instantly. Okay, two things in my head. Being in the car with you that day and literally you saying you felt an explosion as we were passing the Whole Foods is crazy. That is crazy. My hat is off to you because that's amazing. Number two, this is classic mob behavior. So tell me, who was Cagnoni? Tell me everything. Cagnoni was the proprietor of multiple firms specializing in equipment leasing and freight forwarding. Basically, he ran a trucking company. So he wasn't, like, involved? There was no criminal record associated with him, and the police had no knowledge of any involvement in any criminal organizations or drug syndicates. His lifestyle, along with his wife's, seemed remarkably ordinary. I'm not buying it. According to state investigators and federal ATF agents... Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Thank you. All the fun stuff. The... Explosive device was powerful and sophisticated, and the dynamite had probably been attached to the car the prior night, including a radio-controlled detonator. A stolen 1974 Buick was found in the nearby Cypress restaurant parking lot, 75 feet from the explosion site, and it contained a radio transmitter similar to a garage door opener. And when the car came within range of the device, the explosive device was triggered. So the Buick was sitting there, and that's how the bomb was ignited. It was detonated as he took that ramp to work. Mm -hmm. It came into contact. It came close enough to the Buick sitting in the parking lot that it detonated the bomb. Wow. Yes. That's a lot of work to kill somebody. That's like math. You know what I mean? It is math, yeah. But that's a lot. They must have known his routines. Oh, for sure. They must have known that he would take that ramp to work that day. Yeah. And, you know, interesting when you talk about victimology, like what would make you a victim? Like if you have the same routine over and over and over again without like mixing things up, that can make you a target to a crime because people can rely on you being a certain place at a certain time. So that's pretty interesting that you bring that up. Mm. Just switch it up now and again. That's that's the PSA. Switch it up. So Michael Cagnoni, I'm confused about because you're telling me he's like like this total legit guy. Is there anything like people knew of him that would indicate like why he was blown up? Because like he was blown up. Well, the police investigated in 1981 following the explosion. What did they uncover? Cagnoni was 36 years old and the father of three. Mm. And everyone they talked to said he was the beacon of kindness in his community. He had a warm personality and a wholehearted dedication to his neighbors. They actually called him, quote, the best neighbor we had. Peggy, his wife, was just 27 years old. She was completely in the dark of any potential threats against her husband. And she couldn't fathom a reason why anyone would harbor the intent to harm her husband, let alone take his life. I am not buying this. You do not. No, because like you like the mob doesn't do math and like like set up an elaborate killing if it wasn't making a message out of it. Well, for years, law enforcement suspected that the mob was responsible for Cagnoni's 1981 car bomb murder. Yes, of course. Investigation. Like, yes, of course. Of course. No one blows people up unless you're the mob. However, the details were murky. They had no knowledge of how Cagnoni was connected to the mob, and they didn't know exactly who was responsible or why he was targeted. But then something happened, Jill. 
what happened. There was a criminal investigation known as Operation Family Secrets that would uncover decades of mob secrets and fill in the details about the 1981 car bombing and over a dozen other murders. Another good name, Operation Family Secrets. Tell me about it. This is huge. Operation Family Secrets was one of the most significant criminal investigations in Chicago mob history. Uh Uh-oh. Now, it started in 1998. What? And it aimed to expose and dismantle the Chicago outfit altogether. That's the year I graduated high school. And, like, I was in this area. It's so crazy to think about, like, this is, like, where we were living, when we were living there, these things happening. Go on. Sorry. It culminated in the Family Secrets trial of 2007, which resulted in several key members of the Chicago outfit being brought to justice. Oh, my God. Now, you might be wondering how it got its name. How? (laughs) It's a great name. How did it get its name? It got its name because Frank Calabrese Jr., the son of reputed mob hitman Frank Calabrese Sr., decided to cooperate with the FBI and provide critical information about the outfit's operations. Junior, you're breaking my heart. What? This information included details about numerous unsolved murders, which were family secrets that the Calabrese family had been keeping hidden for years. Hang in there, guys. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to unveil the first book in our series entitled Common Mystics Present Ghost on the Road, Volume 1, Murders and Mysterious Deaths. It's everything you love about Common Mystics and more. It's a retelling of 10 of our favorite stories from our pod with exciting extras. Extras like souvenirs, what we took away from the experience, and what to know if you go if you decide to travel in our footsteps. Pre-order the Kindle edition now. All other formats of the book will be available for purchase at Amazon.com on July 1st, 2023. Thanks, guys. Now back to the show. So, Operation Family Secrets. Yes. Son, Frank Calabrese Jr. cooperates with the feds against his father, Frank Calabrese Sr. Yes. How did we get here? Like, what? Like, that's a big step. Like, you don't just turn in your father and, like, the mob for nothing. So how did we get here? It all started with the murder of John Fecarota. Never heard of him. Who is he? John, or Big John Fecarota, was a hitman and a loan collector with the outfit. Okay. And someone wanted him gone. Someone wanted him gone because he totally screwed up a murder. What do you mean? Oh, my God. He botched a murder? He botched a murder. He got this murder contract. They were like, you need to take these guys out. And instead of, like, doing what he was supposed to do, like, he did a shit shabby job. And they found the bodies of the people that were, like, supposed to, like, you know, when, I mean, they're still looking for Hoffa. That was the kind of, like, level of detail they were expecting Big John to put to these hits, these two people that he killed. Right. And instead, like, he, like, shit away the money, got drunk, and left the bodies, which were found in, like, five days. Oh, so that's no. why Big John had to go. It's like, what the f- Big John, take this a little seriously. Wow. You know what? I wonder, though, if there was a job description. Like, was this in writing? Because I think if he wasn't given the job description with the, the task analysis and what needed to be done, I don't think it's quite fair to hold him for a level that hasn't been expressed to him. I'm just thinking, like, on the job. 
on I the job. I understand. I think that's a great point. But <laughs> I think that in this type of organization, you don't want to write down the crimes, oh, describing okay. how the crimes are done. Well, who's the asshole then? Who's the <laughs> asshole then? <laughs> I don't think that's Big John's fault. (laughs) Anyway, so they wanted Big John gone. So on September 14th, 1986, Fekaroda was lured to a meeting under the pretense of carrying out a hit. Unbeknownst to him, he was the target. If you are, like, scheduled to meet with the mob, you never know. Is it going to be me or are they telling me to do something else? You know, you never know. I don't know. I would be like, we can do, like, a Zoom. Call me. You know what I mean? (laughs) Let's not meet in person. He thought he was meeting for a hit. Uh, I don't know. You can't carry out a hit over Zoom. Yet. Yet. (laughs) Yet. I believe in AI. We will get there. Could you imagine? That will revolutionize the mob. I shudder. I shudder to think of the possibilities. Please continue. What happened? So, Big John, he's lured to a location. He thinks he's going to be carrying out a hit, but instead, the hit was on him. And when he arrived, the Calabrese... When he arrived at bingo, by the way, he went to a bingo hall. (laughs) He's going to kill someone at bingo? Who did he think he's hitting? I don't know. Like the Walmart greeter? So he shows up at the bingo hall, and Frank Calabrese Sr. and his brother, Nick Calabrese, were there. Uh Uh-oh. And they went after him in the vestibule of the building. And Nick Calabrese, in the scuffle, accidentally shot himself in the arm, and he left behind blood evidence. She's another botched hit. No, not a botched hit. Now, Big John, he managed to escape the initial confrontation in the vestibule. But as he ran out into the street, he was chased and shot dead. Wow. Big John's murder was initially unsolved, but it became a critical part of the Operation Family Secrets investigation. Because when presented with the DNA evidence from the blood he left at the scene, as well as the knowledge that his nephew Frank Jr. was already working with the feds, Nick Calabrese, Frank Sr.'s brother, decided to cooperate with the FBI and confessed to his involvement in several murders. Okay, because... Frank Jr., when he agreed to cooperate with the FBI, he said, I'm just going to give you information about my father. I don't want nothing to do with the rest of the organization. Like, I'm not going there. So when the FBI got that information from Jr., they're like, we're going to need someone else. So armed with the DNA, they went to Nikki and they're like, hey, you're going to sing like a canary. And he did. And he did. He testified against his brother, Frank Calabrese Sr., as part of a plea deal. And Nick's testimony helped to secure convictions against several leading figures in the Chicago outfit, including his own brother, Frank Calabrese Sr., and four other top leaders. And the five men were charged with taking part in extortion, illegal gambling, loan sharking, and 18 murders, including that of 1981 car bombing of Michael Cagnoni. I totally, totally knew that the mob had something to do with it. Oh, my God. Tell me the details. Who was Michael Cagnoni really, and what did he do to get himself blown up? Details about Cagnoni did finally emerge. And some of it came from his own head of security, or I should say ex-head of security, a man named Frank Pavlich. Okay. He testified about Cagnoni's dealings prior to his death. What did he tell us? 
Interesting enough, Pavlich resigned as head of security for Cagnoni only weeks before the car bombing. Ask me why. Why? Because he received an anonymous phone call that persuaded him that it would be a good idea to quit as Cagnoni's security director. I love that to be like, bling, bling. Hey, I think it would be wise if you decided to look for another job. Huh? Exactly. Why don't you why don't exactly. you just quit today? Exactly. So he listened. He wasn't a dummy. He resigned. <laughs> right? Mama raised no fools. <laughs> Pavlich described how Cagnoni set up a cooperative association consisting of Chicago and New York grocers and California produce growers, sending thousands of trucks back and forth between Chicago and the West Coast every week. But every week. Cagnoni also carried a briefcase stuffed with thousands of dollars of cash to a place called Flash Trucking, a business in the suburb of Cicero that made most of his Chicago area deliveries. Absolutely crazy. Now, Flash Trucking? Yes was owned by the Spano brothers, who were connected to mob activity in the suburb of Cicero. Wow. Uh Uh-huh. In fact, Michael Spano went to prison for helping former Cicero town president Betty Lauren Maltese swindle the suburb out of millions of dollars. I remember that. Do you remember that? Of course I remember that. That was big news. Oh, such big news. Not only that... Pavlich also testified that sometimes money was delivered to a Rosemont hotel where Cagnoni met with some of the most powerful mob bosses in the entire country. You see, the fact was Cagnoni was actually working with the mob. He supervised the outfit's produce hauling operations, and he himself was murdered for holding back some of the profits for himself. I knew it. 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 I know you did know it. You called it right from the beginning. You do not like put that level of detail into a killing unless you are making a statement. And that's a big bomb of a statement. You don't get greedy when you're working for the mob. It seems like he just got greedy. It does, doesn't it? So you think he's our voiceless? Well, I'm sorry for him. Why do you feel sorry for him? I feel sorry for him because, like, he got blown up. <laughs> like, that that's sucks. That's true. He did get blown up. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's a shitty thing to have happen to you. But I don't feel like he's our voiceless. Do you? I don't. Who do you think our voiceless is? I think our voiceless is Nikki, Nick Calabrese, Frank Sr.'s brother. What are you even saying? You mean the hitman? The guy that botched up Big John? All right, hold up. I I don't think that's fair. That's, like, literally what let, happened. Let's, let's, Let's talk about it. Nick Calabrese was hated on both sides of the law. Stay with me here. Okay. From the organization's point of view, he was the ultimate rat. He was a rat. He was a rat. Nick was the prosecution's key witness in the Operation Family Secrets trial, in which marked a significant blow to the Chicago outfit. The dismantling of Al Capone's Chicago outfit. That's a huge deal. So why should, why is he our voiceless? It was a landmark case. Yeah. So he was hated by the mob. Sure. But he also admitted to participating in 14 murders as a hitman for the Chicago outfit. You're proving my point here. I'm not feeling very sympathetic. Why on earth are we giving Nikki a voice? It seems like um, he said enough. Jill, I think that Nick fell under his brother's influence. The mob chose him. He did not have a choice. 
Okay. Intrigued. I'm intrigued by this this new turn because I too have an overbearing sibling <laughs> who is over, who is older than myself. Nick himself was an unwitting participant in his very own first murder. Let me tell Uh-oh. you how that happened. Let me I know that sounds unlikely, but here's how it happened. Are you ready? Okay. Okay. It was August 1970, and Frank Sr., his brother, told Nikki that they were going to have to find a place to dig a hole to put a body in. Well, Nick thought he was joking. Mm-hmm. Then Frank's good friend Ron Jarrett showed up with a stolen four-door Chevy, and he lured the victim into the passenger seat of the car. And then he picked up the Calabrese brothers, and they sat in the back. It was a Sunday, and Jarrett drove out to an empty construction site near White Sox Park. Jarrett grabbed one of the victim's arms. Nick grabbed the other. And then Frank Sr. put a rope around the victim's neck and strangled him. Then Frank slit his throat just to make sure he was dead. Oh, my God. Nicky was so scared, he wet his pants. That's fair. Then they removed the dead man's pants, threw him in a hole in the construction site with two bags of lime, and filled up the hole. Afterwards, Frank Sr. warned his brother never to mention the murder. Wow. Now, that level of detail in getting rid of the body is what I would have expected from Big John. Just saying. (laughs) So... Well, maybe if any other mobsters are listening out there, <laughs> they'll take note. Well, I want to say, okay, I've, I'm hearing you. I hear this story. But to me, it feels like Nick had a lot of opportunities to say no in that scenario. Yes, but Frank Sr. was a ruthless and very dangerous man. He was not a man that you could say no to easily. Okay, Frank Sr.'s criminal activities spanned several decades, beginning when he was just a teenager. Mm. He started by stealing cars, and then his crimes became even more serious and violent over time. He carried out multiple murders, and his methods were particularly brutal, even for the mob. So he was enjoying it. He's like a cat with a mouse. He was known by his cohorts as cold-blooded, And he had a lack of remorse for his violent actions. So, yeah, I would say that's probably true. Yeah. And if fellow mobsters are like, no, no, this guy is pretty fucked up. Like, that's a that's a sign. I would say so. Now, not only that, but Frank Sr. was also insidious and manipulative. And this is best illustrated by his relationship with his son, Frank Jr. Oh, Frankie, what happened? Well, Frank Sr. was often physically and emotionally abusive to his family members. And he could switch personalities like that, Jill. Mm. Going from charming and friendly on one hand to controlling and murderous in a heartbeat. That's a pretty quick jump. Like, oh, hi, I'm going to kill you. Like, oh, God, (laughs) you know, like, Dad, calm down. And Frank Sr., he began drawing his own son into the family business at a very early age, just by having him run errands. And then by 19, Frank Jr. was full-blown part of mob activities by collecting money from peep shows and keeping the books. In fact, Frank Jr. would say that all the math he ever learned, he learned by keeping the books. Wow. Now, by the time Frank Jr. was in his 20s, he was trying to escape his father's control. And so he set up businesses on his own and in his own name. But he also, unfortunately, began dealing and using cocaine. That's never good. 
Never good. To feed his addiction, Frank Jr. began to steal money from a cache of about $700,000 that his father kept hidden away in his grandmother's basement. Now, this is the thing. I could see taking money out of there like a little bit at the time because who's going to keep counting the $700,000 to see yeah. if anything's missing? But he must have took a lot for it to be noticeable. Well, Frank Sr. did discover his son's theft. Oof. And when he found out, he was angry and <laughs> he did what any parent would do and asked to talk to his son. Okay. That's reasonable. Um, So he set up a meeting. No. And he said, hey, let's have coffee. Meet me at the lockup garage. No, I would be like, dad, can we like talk in front of mom? Like, I don't want to go to the lockup garage. Like at garage. a Dunkin' we- Donuts. No, I'd be like, can we just go to the in the living room? Why are we why are we leaving the house for this meeting? The lockup garage. He asked to meet him for coffee at a lockup garage used by the crew. And of course, Frank Jr. said no. Well, he went, but as soon as he opened the door to the garage to meet his father, his father grabbed him and stuck a gun in his cheek. Mm. You're right, Jill. It was a setup. Yeah. And then Frank Sr. said to his son, he said, I would rather have you dead than to disobey me. Eek. Luckily for Junior, Frank Sr. did not pull the trigger that day. But his actions did inspire his son to work with the FBI to put his father away. Wow. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. So that was the kind of guy that Frank Sr. was. He wasn't a guy that you defied. No, that situation with his son, to pull a gun on your son. Mm-hmm. Like, come on, man, that's right. your kid. But Nikki understood that dynamic, and he actually encouraged Frank Jr. to get out of the family business. What do you mean? Tell me what that means. In 1986, Frank Jr. was chosen to take part on that hit on Big John Facarota. Remember the one where Nikki accidentally shot himself and left behind blood and DNA evidence? Yeah. Frank Jr. was supposed to be there. But in advance, Nikki talked to him, and he talked him out of it. And he said, this ain't for you, kid. You don't want this life. And to this day, Frank Jr. credits his Uncle Nick for saving his life. That's true. Another thing is this arm of the Chicago mob in the 90s got arrested. And so Jr. ended up going to the prison where his dad was. And that's when the Operation Family Secret started because Frank Jr. was wearing a wire talking to his dad in prison. Now, again, the FBI was working with Frank Jr. just to get senior, right? Right. But Frank Sr. is increasingly paranoid. He's not trusting anybody. He's getting really unhinged as he's in prison. Ooh. So one of the higher-ups, Angelo the Hook, reached out to Junior and he's let, and said, hey, Junior, if you want to take your dad out, there'll be no repercussions. Go ahead and, you know, put a hit on your dad. Oh. I know. And so Junior was like, what? Like, he didn't know wh- where to turn because it's like, the FBI wants my dad. This guy wants my dad killed. So he goes and consults his uncle, Nikki. And Nikki said, you know what? I know what you're going through, kid. He's like, but you can't do it. Not because it's your dad, but because you couldn't live with yourself if you do that. So just keep your head down and try to stay out of the situation. And that's when he agreed to start working with the FBI. Junior did because he was like, there's no way out of this unless I turn my dad in, unless my dad goes away. So Nick wasn't a completely bad guy. Yes, he did bad things, but he wasn't a completely bad guy. And that's why I think he's our voiceless. Do you agree? Well, what does he want us to know? What change in the narrative are we giving, Nick? 
I think that he wants us to know that his role was that of an executioner. When you look back at the papers, people refer to Nick as a, quote, serial killer. He wasn't a serial Mm -hmm. killer. He was the guy who happened to swing the axe. He was the guy who pushed the button. He was ordered to commit these hits. It wasn't on him. It wasn't his decision, but it was his job to carry them out. That's different. He wants us to know that. I actually really agree with that because he was part of an organization that lived by these rules, Mm -hmm. similar to the way we have rules of society. Like if you are guilty and convicted of a crime, then you are going to be put to death. And Nick is saying, like, I'm not the judge and the jury. Someone deemed whatever happened as a criminal act that needs to be taken care of. So I totally get that. Mm -hmm. I'm on board with you. I don't like the thought of killing people, but I hear you. Right. Also, he wasn't killing innocent people. These people mm-hmm. were also mobsters. Right. He didn't kill innocent people. Case in point, Michael Cagnoni. Mm-hmm. Cagnoni was working for the outfit and skimming from the profits of the trucking operation. And he knew better. And he got greedy. And he wasn't innocent. And that's why he got hit. And for so long, the papers looked at the Cagnoni bombing as this innocent, great guy. Yeah. So I hear you, Nikki. Is there anything else that you discovered in the research that led you to believe that definitely Nikki is our voiceless? There is actually, Jill. What is it? When we were driving around on Ogden Avenue right at the site of the 1981 explosion, it was March 2023. Well, Nikki died on March 13th. 2023, just days before we got these hits. And that, to me, cemented the idea that he was calling out to us for us to tell his story. I agree. I agree. The Chicago Sun-Times ran an article on March 14th, 2023. Now, we were driving on the 28th of March. Says mob hitman Nicholas Calabrese, who testified against brother and other top mobsters at the family secrets trial, dead at 80. Crazy. Yep. That's insane. Why do you think he was like leaning into us though? Well, I think that he knew that we would understand his point of view because we love mobsters. We do love mobsters. One of the people in our early lives who was a father figure to us happened to be a mobster. Detours. (laughs) Visit us on Detours to hear about Jennifer's car catching on fire and our own mafioso that really helped us out and we loved in the family. But for right now, Jen, let's get over our hits. Mob vibes? I mean, please. The town of Cicero? Oh, my God. Flash trucking was in Cicero, and it was completely connected to the mafia. Absolutely. Slot machines and casinos. One, the Chicago mob had connections, maybe still does, in Las Vegas. But also that whole idea of casino really gave it a time and a place to the setting of this story. We knew somehow that it wasn't during Prohibition times. You know what I mean? It was more modern than that. Not only that, you're going to die. Tell Let me. me tell you. What? The movie Casino yeah. is based on the brothers that were killed by Big John. Oh, my God. It was those brothers' murders that Big John did that he botched that put Big John up for getting hit. Wow. Yeah, that is I crazy. Know. That's crazy. So- 
not only did it give us a time, a stamp, but also it was connected to the actual Family Secrets trial and Operation Family Secrets. Are you so impressed with your psychicness right now? That is insane. Tell me about the Teamsters. Why did that come up? Teamsters are known as the champions of freight drivers and warehouse workers. Get out of here. I know. I had no idea. So Cagnoni probably worked with Teamsters. Exactly. And his business was freight. Wow. And warehousing. That's insane. Obviously, the whole explosion was a major hit, as well as the family-run business, because I believe that Nikki and Frank Jr., too, but especially Nikki, was born into this family business and really had no choice. What do you think about the whole Superman scene in your head, that Superman 2 scene? They were on trial. Yes. The villains were on trial. Yes, and found guilty. And they tried to invade the law, but yet they were found guilty. Absolutely. As was five people that Nikki put away Yeah, by his testimony, including his own brother. So what, what happened to his brother? What happened to Frank Sr.? Frank Sr. died in prison on December 22nd, 2012. Okay, what happened to Nikki? He had 12 years in prison, and then he went into the witness protection program, and he lived out his life until he was 80. But the thing is that you need to remember, and I think the judge that put Nikki away said this to the families of the victims that Nikki had murdered, because Nikki got 12 years for the 14 murders that he was involved with, and the victims' families were really upset with that time frame. And he said, you have to know that this man... Without him, we have no convictions. But not only that, he's never going to have peace in his life. Every day, he's going to be looking over his shoulder, whether he's in prison or not. Mm. Now, Frank Jr. wrote a book. He does interviews regarding the family secrets trial and operation that he was involved in with the FBI. He's a good guy. I reached out to him. He did not respond, but I still wish him well. And I'm very proud of him that he was able to get clean, live a straight life. And um, yeah, he's doing well with his family. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this talk. That was fun. Meet us on Detours for the story about my car catching on fire and uh, also our stories about our own connection to the Chicago outfit. I just want to say that I love this story because it literally is... Feels like home. It is home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is home for us. It feels right. It does feel right. (laughs) A little grimy. All right, tell the people where they can find us. Please check out our website, commonmystics.net. Find us on our socials at Common Mystics Pod. Please like, download, and share. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.